So you found the New Species Podcast. You thought, I'm going to start with episode one. But what you don't know is that this is supposed to be kind of a current event type of podcast. So actually listening to the later podcasts is even better. I suggest you start with one of the more recent ones. But if you want to start with episode one, it is pretty interesting. And here you go. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists who have recently described new species about their discoveries. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Mark Schertz. Mark is a herpetologist and evolutionary biologist and is currently a postdoctoral researcher in the Adaptive Genomics Group at the University of Potsdam in northern Germany. He's here today to talk to us about his paper published in January 2021 in Zoosystematics and Evolution. The title of the paper is Consequences of Par- Parallel Miniaturization in Microhyalony with a Description of a New Genus of Diminutive Southeast Asia Frogs. Welcome, Mark. Hello. Thank you. So I'm delighted to be here on your first episode. It's very exciting. Yeah, this is the inaugural episode, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to keep one of these cranked out once every week. I've got the next couple of uh, guests all lined up, so I think we're, we're on a good start. Excellent. So there's, that's a big title to a paper here, and, and I'm trying to keep this as kind of like a, a, a podcast where even people who are not taxonomists can relate to mm-hmm. it. So let's start with the basics here. What are the microhyalini and where are they typically found? We're clearly talking about frogs, right? So, right. so exactly. give us an idea of these things and what exactly, that's a big technical term. Let's try to break that down a little bit for people. Mm-hmm. So the microhylinae are a subfamily of frogs within the family microhylidae. Okay, so obviously idae is the ending meaning family, inae is the subfamily uh, for animals. And so the microhylids are also called narrow-mouthed frogs. Um, Americans might be familiar with them from the genus Gastrophryini, which is found across much of the U- United States. Um, I think there are two species of Gastrophryini within the U.S., And um, they are one of the most diverse families of frogs. Um, They're found across all of the continents. They happen to be my sort of, um, one of my areas of expertise, so the the microhylids as a whole. I work with a a whole group of other people. In fact, at the um, World Congress of Herpetology, which was last January, exactly one year ago now, um, we hosted a uh, a symposium on the biology of the microhylid frogs uh, together with some colleagues. And, so because they're globally distributed, they're a really fascinating group of frogs because most frogs, you know, they don't, they're not exactly great at dispersing because they don't do well with salt water. Um, but the microhylids are a very old group of frogs. Actually, whether or not they should be a family or some higher rank is, is a bit of a dispute. Um, but they occupy not only global distribution, but also ecologically, they are hugely diverse. So you have arboreal microhylids, you have um, semi-aquatic microhylids, you have um, burrowing species, super uh, specialized species. Many people who are active on Twitter might be familiar with the giant, like the, the very round frog that made its debut on uh, social media a few days ago. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, the one that looks that like was... it has no back legs. Exactly. Well, this is uh, Glyphoglossus molossus, which is actually a member of the microhylinae, the subfamily. 
Um, and so, right, so I, I mostly work on uh, reptiles and amphibians of Madagascar. This paper is actually really exceptional for me because it's me working on a group that is not my typical uh, uh, area. Um, yeah, this, but is because a, this, is a, on... this is across the Pacific Ocean from where you were. Exactly, right. So we're talking now about frogs that are from Asia, um, most of, mostly Southern Asia and Southeast Asia. Um, the Microhylinae is a relatively diverse group of frogs. And among them are, is, is this one clade um, that's composed of, or has until now been composed of the genus um, Microhyla, the, the type yep. genus of the, of the family and subfamily, and this other very weird thing, which is Glyphoglossus, which used to be divided into two separate uh, genera, basically. So there was, on the one hand, Glyphoglossus, and on the other hand, these things called Caluella. And they were all merged into a single genus when it was found out that this very weird frog, the one that, that was all over social media, happens to be nested in the group. And so the oldest name had to you know, take priority over the younger things. Um, but this assemblage is really weird because glyphoglossus frogs are very fat, big frogs. And microhyla, on the other hand, consists of several frog species that are extremely small. Um, so how, there's how a, small? a lot of variation in body size. How small? But we're talking some of the smallest vertebrates in the world. Some of them are around uh, 10 to 14 millimeters adult body size. Okay, yeah, so, Very so small. That's it, about the size of a grain of rice. A little bit, maybe two grains of rice uh, uh, end to end. Yeah, so we're talking a half inch or less in, the, in, in American terms ah, yes, and in, one to two yeah. centimeters in that range for, for everyone else in the world. Yes, <laughs> in freedom units. It's, um, so they are, but we see a lot of diversity in sort of the body size. This is true across the entire family of microhylid frogs, though there's a huge amount of diversity in body size. People might know that it, it, two years ago, I described a genus um, that was completely new and we called it mini. And the three species are mini mum, miniature, and uh, miniscule, because I like puns. And sure. um, those three species range between 10 and 14 millimeters, but they are all found only on Madagascar and belong to an entirely different subfamily. And even just within Madagascar, there are multiple different repeated convergences on extremely small body sizes. Sure. Now we go to Southeast Asia, we see the same thing. We see this one group of frogs where you have, okay, these, these large things that are sister to them, very old, but sister to that group. And then there and, was And by sister, group... what we mean is if you're looking at the tree of life, that you got the branches on it. And so a clade would be a group of them on that. And when you're saying they're sister to it, we're talking that that would be a group of them that's next to another group, right? Exactly. Okay. They're, they're closest living relatives. Right. So kind yeah. of like my, my cousin's. You know, there you have my direct family tree with my parents, and then of course we have my my cousins, which come from you know siblings of my parents and grandparents and the like. All right, so sorry to interrupt. Exactly. I just want to make sure we get the terminology. No, down. no, it's important that we clarify all the terminology. I, I often just just go with all the <laughs> uh, the jargon. It's a it's a dangerous. Okay, so we were on there's a, there's a clade then that's in that's in exactly. Southeast so, Asia. So these these the the big guys, the glyphoglossus, are sister to the microhyla. And then within microhyla, there's a lot of body size variation. And what we did in this study is to, or specifically, I should say that um, Vlad and Nick, so Vlad is the first author on the study. 
Um, he is a PhD student in the lab of Nick Poyarkov um, in Moscow. And they basically initiated this project and I was brought on because I've done a lot of this stuff with a miniaturization in microhylids of Madagascar. Sure. And, um, and the idea was to sort of study the evolution of miniaturization within these frogs and also to look at whether or not the, the deep clades within the genus microhyla so at the very base of the genus microhyla, it looks like there is a basal split. So again, two sister lineages, each of which consists of many species, but it's this fundamental and very deep split. And previous work had shown that this comes up again and again, no matter which genetic data we're looking at. And the more genetic data we include, the the clearer the picture is that these and things the, are really distinct and old. And there's a geographic Process There's a this, little right? bit you of can, a geographic You can see that on the too, when yeah. you draw that tree, right? You can actually see that there's something fairly geographic to this little grouping that you're talking about. So that exactly those that were yeah. those species that were that were grouping together tend to be found in a particular area. So this isn't necessarily like you're talking about things that are spread all over the world in a random way. Exactly. There's, there's a yeah, geographic yeah. pattern that's associated with this. Yeah, yeah, and and because of that. Uh, we we wanted to basically establish whether or not these these um, lineages should be recognized as different genera, and so there's a lot of you know there's all kinds of debate about what is a species, right? But what people sort of ignore or gloss over is above the species level is much worse than at the species level, right? Sure, and just and just so people are clear about this, I want to make sure we we again we got a variety of possible listeners for this. For those who are not familiar, a species name is composed of two parts, right? So we have the genus and the specific epithet. So, for example, exactly. in, in humans, it would be Homo sapiens, Homo being the genius, sapiens being the specific epithet. And then together, those two words, what we would call a binomial, create the, uh, the species name, Homo sapiens. And so what you're talking about here is, you know, when we talk about a species, we talk about, for example, uh, one of your uh, microhyla as as a and it'll have a specific epithet after that and what you're talking about is a large number of these in that same genus and most people kind of ignore the fact that when you get above the species level things get really messy because it's hard to group right. them sometimes right well it's, it's hard and, and traditionally you know this stuff was done based on morphological characters and you had this idea that oh after a certain amount of morphological difference they should have another rank right the rank, ranks right. are according to Linnaeus Linnaeus came up with this beautiful system uh, which you can use whatever acronym you like for, and um, and so above above species level. So what I like to say is, okay, species are an illusion, but genus genera doubly so, right? So, so yeah. <laughs> it, it's it it's really important to keep this in mind if you're thinking sort of evolutionarily as well. If you want to compare two different groups, and you're saying both of these things are genera or both of these things are family. That doesn't say anything about how old they actually are. It tells you how distinct people used to think they were from other groups of, of organisms. It doesn't necessarily reflect time, which is a serious problem. So, so in your paper here, you don't actually describe a new species, right? What you're actually doing is describing Correct. a new genus, the nanohyla. Exactly. Can you tell us yeah. briefly a little bit how you came about actually, we've, we've talked somewhat about this, but how did you specifically decide briefly that, that nanohyla should be a new genus? 
Yeah, so this is this this is the thing where the splitting versus lumping comes into play. We debated this amongst ourselves as authors quite a bit. Um, and, and tried to make sure that we were all on the same page. Because sometimes when you have collaborations like this, you don't necessarily always see eye to eye. In this case, we did. You know, we looked at these frogs, we said, okay, look, there's this very, very, very deep um, uh, biogeogra- or, or, um, uh, phylogenetic split. So the, the three different groups that we're talking about here, Glyphoglossus and what had previously in publications been referred to as Microhyla 1 and Microhyla 2, which are two different groups of these microhyla species, um, they diverged something like 60 million years ago, uh, maybe even longer ago. I'd, I'd have to pull it directly out of the paper. And that already suggests to us that this thing is, the, this group, these, these, this basal divergence is very old. And so then we started looking at the other things. I like to use um, what's called an integrative taxon- taxonomic approach which means that I like to look for the place where different lines of evidence agree. And, sure. and they, the congruence of multiple lines of evidence suggests sort of a, um, an overwhelming body of evidence that would support a conclusion in one direction or another. It's a very popular uh, movement now in taxonomy that was sort of um, kickstarted back in, in 2005 or so. And you can actually see and, the results of this then. And you, and you have one of the trees well, you have more than one tree in the in here, but you have one particular tree, uh, which nobody listening to us is going to be able to find unless they click on the link, which will be in the episode notes, uh, where you actually have quite clearly delineated the three different genera here, right? And you see exactly. nanohyla actually come out quite basal to the other two. Is that correct? So it, it depends on which partition of the data set that you're looking in. And, and this is a problem, okay? So when, it, a lot of the time, when we're looking at very deep splits, we're dealing with the problem that DNA, um, especially some particular classes of DNA, gets saturated over time because the mutations can only happen at a certain rate. And at some point, basically all of the reasonable mutations that can happen across the genome, basically all the ones that don't cause a gene to become completely non-functional, have been, have happened, and then you have what's called saturation where the DNA doesn't have that much signal anymore. Yeah, it attenuates and, at a certain at a certain level and you just can't exactly. get any more so information from it. You get this plateau it. in how much information right. it can, can hold. And part of the result of that is that you get the inability to differentiate these deep splits. And so one set of DNA will give, or, or you know, one, one group of genes will give you one pattern and another group of genes will give you another pattern. But what we do find is that no matter what way you split up the data, if you lump it all together, if you split it into different classes or whatever, there are always these three clades, right? And because there are always these three clades, you have always that confidence that there are three different groups here. You also have confidence that there's one group here, which is the entire group as a whole. But because we have this glyphoglossus lineage, which is so different morphologically, treating this whole thing as one genus doesn't make sense. It just doesn't. Because we would be talking about having a group that is impossible to identify, to diagnose. And that's really important in taxonomy. I think, you know, um, first and foremost, we're trying to make, not, identify not only species, but also like reasonably identifiable or, 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 yeah, reasonable biological units. Um, and so we wind up with these three genetic clades. And then we start looking for other lines of evidence, right? And so we turn to things like the osteology. So I've done a lot of osteological work, but most of the work on this 
osteolo osteological uh, side was done by Vlad, who had um, made micro CT scans, which are presented in the paper. And in the supplements, there are also cleared insane specimens. So in, when you're... And so, so osteological, we're talking about looking at the actual skeletons of bones. these things, right? Yeah. Yeah, bones. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and for vertebrates, there's a special method called clearing and staining. And what you can do is basically render all of the flesh of the animal transparent, and you can stain all the bones blue and all of the cartilages pink. And using that method, so the problem with micro CT is, first of all, it, it can be expensive, it can be very time consuming, and it can also, it, it cannot show cartilage, which can be quite important for frogs. Yeah, and, and again, so so people understand, you probably heard of a CT scan that you might be able mm -hmm. to get for, you know, if you're, you're looking for something like a, a brain tumor or something like that. There's also a version of this called micro CT, which is basically doing that on very small things. Exactly. <laughs> and, so and that way you can see the inside. Yeah, you can see the yeah. inside of something and kind of get like a render a 3D image of it using this. It's basically just a 3D x-ray. You know, sometimes I think we over, over talk it because... CT means computed tomography, which really just means a 3D volume of what you're looking at. Yeah. But what it really is, is x-rays that have been taken at a lot of different angles and are then using a computer constructed into a 3D representation of that data set. And here we have these 3D data sets of the frogs that we're looking at. And so you can look at all the bones, but the bones are still in the specimen, which is great because otherwise we wind up destroying the specimens that in order to get at their skeletons, right? If I have to take the bones out of the frog, I can't then go and measure the length of the foot of the frog because it's no longer together. Okay, so I, gotta... I can take a micro CT scan, look at the bones, but the frog is still intact. So here's my question. When you do that clearing, okay, now this is just, I work with invertebrates and I work with things with exoskeletons. So... <laughs> <laughs> When you do all of that, clear, and we do do things like we, we, we have to clear away some of the soft tissue and we use various techniques for that, but there's you can actually have it either eaten away by, say, for example, like lactic acid, or you can do something where you do a clearing, which you're talking about, for example, with clove oil. You can actually mm -hmm. submerge it in and the clove oil will make the, the main tissue go clear. Cool. But then you can pull it back out. And you can, and the and the soft tissue will come back to color and all of that. Is that does that happen with the frogs once you clear them? Or are they cleared no. forever? No, yeah, a, a clear and stained uh, vertebrate specimen is cleared and stained forever. You cannot. That's what I assumed, but it, it's it's yeah. it's one of those questions yeah. I've always wondered. Like, hey, when they do that, yeah. Is so this so this is the process? big advantage of micro CT. This is what has changed a lot because of uh, I, I guess one of the core things that people uh, listening to a taxonomy podcast should know is that when we describe species. One of the important things that we do is designate a holotype. And right. that holotype is the name-bearing specimen. It's the one that matters if you want to go and clarify what the name means. Right. It's the one specimen. So just so people are clear, you, you pick the one. So you, you go out and we find a whole bunch of, in this case, frogs. And we decided that this large group of them, this, this number of them that we picked up are all one species. And we think it's a new one. So now I need to pick which one of the 10 of them that I collected I think best represents the variation because there's going to be you know different slight difference in sizes, color patterns, yeah. things like that. This is the one that I think kind of represents that, and that's the one I'm going to say is what we call the name-bearing one or the holotype. In other words, that's the one where we're going to say, I'm going to describe this specimen, and this is the idealized version in my mind of what it should look like, and then everything else will be compared to that to see if it if it works. There are advantages and disadvantages of this based on the number of <laughs> specimens you get, but that's a different conversation for a different day. So you're, yeah. 
So, so historically, part of the problem has been that you can have a mixed type group. So you have one type, you, you might have a holotype, but your paratype could actually be four different species that you didn't realize at the time were different species. And a paratype is something that you, that you would name at the same holotype. time. A paratype is something you name at the same time as the holotype. And they're, they're like exactly. backups to it. You're like, well, I also need to encapsulate that there is some variation in this. And so uh, I, I can only pick one thing for a holotype, but I can pick multiple others that I also think should be elevated up to almost the same level as the holotype so that other people can look at those. And it's also important for museum collections where we keep these things because they're extremely valuable to science. And a lot of times when you ask for a holotype, they'll say, well, I can give you a paratype. Would that be okay? Because I really don't want to let that holotype out of my sight. And so, yeah, it's important that we, and there's a, there's a whole different podcast that will come up someday that I'll do where we talk all about these idiosyncrasies. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, historically, people would use what's called syntypes, which is the equal level. All these things are like holotypes, so they all yeah. represent the species. But again, this is a problem when you have multiple different things representing. But the, what I was going to say was, for the holotype, if you only have one specimen, it is by, by default the holotype, right? Right. But now I want to know about the skeleton of this frog. I can't take it apart. I can't do the cleaning and staining. I can't like take macerate the tissue or whatever because that would ruin the holotype. Now, people have done that in the past, which is a huge no-no. Unfortunately, mostly poor grad students who didn't know any better but like this is something that cannot happen right you can't not entirely grad happen. students there there have been some rather oh, yeah, famous are, people who have done some rather silly things throughout yeah, history absolutely. so absolutely and the number of holotypes that have just disappeared altogether is is also astronomical um but now what micro ct allows us to do is get the skeleton of that frog without destroying the specimen so this is great right this this means that we have at our fingertips a huge variety of of um, of skeletons that we wouldn't otherwise have, or other anatomical details. You can do different staining techniques to get it at different parts of the body that are less destructive than clearing and staining. So you can also get soft tissue scans, which is great. But it's um, it's, it's interesting though because you know when we're talking about frogs, you know there's a there's a difference between between frogs and, for example, like I said, I work mostly on spiders. When it comes to spiders, there's also another component outside of the morphology, and that has to do with behavior, right? So you can look at the way the spiders do their little mating dance, that sort of thing. And frogs, there's an obvious one. It's their calls. Mm -hmm. Is there anything unique about the calls within this group or specifically within, say, like Nyanohyla that could differentiate them from others? Yeah, so, so um, I guess that ties a little bit into, into the next steps in the process, like finding other sources of, of things. So we looked a little bit at the calls. It turns out that the calls are, um, I have a, uh, mp3 of a species that was just recorded by nick this week um oh, fantastic which is, uh, cool and he uh he, he sent it to me so we can maybe include it here or at the end i don't know That recording is uh, Nanohyla spf marmorata, so it might be a new species. And you can hear it has this sort of trilling quality to it. So it turns out that um, within frogs, bioacoustics is a super useful tool for identifying species. So you can use um, the calls for that sort of thing. I mean, that's, You can uh, use the call for species level identification. Yeah, because I, I walk outside and I can hear level. the spring peepers 
or yeah. some others, and you can you can definitely say, oh, well, that one's different from this one over here, and you can tell slight yeah. differences between them. Yeah, I always um, enjoy when I'm going to a new area of the field, getting familiar with all the different frog calls. And, you know, in, in some places in Madagascar, you have 40 different species of frogs. And identifying all of them by call is challenging, but it can be done after two weeks or three weeks in the field. And, and that feeling of being like, ah, that's that species. Ah, that's that species. And more importantly, being like, I haven't heard that one before. And then dashing off into the forest to go and find the frog that you've not heard before um, and finding a new species that way. That is one yeah. of the most rewarding feelings I can I have ever had. It's just amazing. You understand. Standing you on the sound... path and being like, that that's a new species. I have to go. <laughs> I have to go find it. <laughs> you, you understand how much you sound like an ornithologist right now, right? It's true. It's true. The only difference between ornithologists and herpetologists, because birds are reptiles, um, is that dinosaurs we... indeed. Yes, we go to sleep when the ornithologists are waking up. That's yeah. the only difference. <laughs> you get to choose. It, it, you know, it's biologically, I think, set. If you are a morning person, you may be an ornithologist. And if you are a night person, you may be either you may study owls and night jars and whatnot, or, or you can be a herpetologist. <laughs> well, There's one exception, which is there, there's a frog that I, I have um, had unfortunate encounters with in Madagascar that calls precisely at 4 a.m. <laughs> and usually from on top of your tent, and it's got this incredible piercing, like uh, Star Wars laser sounding uh, call that just, uh, <laughs> not a nice thing to wake up to first thing in the morning. <laughs> well, that sounds like Especially bedtime. just gone to that bed. Like, yeah. yeah, as I said, that's bedtime, actually. <laughs> He's just serenading you. Yeah, exactly. So one of the questions I, I, I want to be sure I always ask all of my guests, okay, is why is it important for people to know about these frogs? Like, let's let's make this tangible to people elsewhere. You know, they, they think, oh, great. Well, these people are running around Madagascar and Southeast Asia looking for frogs, and who cares? Why why is this important for, for not just science, but for general people to have an understanding of this biological diversity and, and our important jobs of going out to try to find and discover that biological diversity? It's a it's a really great question to ask in the context of a paper like this, where we've not described a new species but a new genus. Because I'm I'm very used to answering the question at the species level, like you know, uh, understanding more about biological diversity means that we can protect that diversity better, and means we have a better understanding of what evolution has managed to achieve and all that stuff. But I think when it comes to genus-level rearrangements like this one, where we've described a new genus, and um, in the end we did find a few characters that, that differentiate it morphologically from the other species, so it, you can see the ear on it, unlike the other species, and that helps us at the level of actually being able to identify the species and, and get a better understanding for what the diversity really means. Here it also gives us a little bit of a better understanding of the history, the the true evolutionary history of the group to tell us that you know we have a lot more uh, of um, a lot more deep diversity than we might otherwise have this is an argument that comes up all the time when i'm talking with you know uh, debating this whole lumpers versus splitters thing because i like to have units that represent a lot of that 
diversity. You know, if I have only one name, one genus name or one family name or whatever, that's representing an enormous diversity. So let's talk about microhylids, right? Microhylidae is a very, very old group of frogs that is found across the world. Treating it as a single family is crazy when something like Buffonidae is the thing that's often compared with it. Buffonidae also almost global. Uh, Buffonidae are toads. Sorry. And, and um, just to, and just to give people a question or an idea of the magnitude that we're talking about here, you say in your paper that Microhylidae, the family level, has twelve subfamilies, fifty-seven genera, and over seven hundred recognized species. Right. So we're not just talking species. like fifty species or twenty species. We're talking hundreds to potentially thousands of species in other groups. Exactly. But consider this is so we talk about this as one family. But we compare that with Buffonidae, also globally distributed, also hundreds of species, but Buffonidae is a fraction of the age, much, much, much younger. And so when we're talking about these different groups, it's not very helpful to talk about Buffonidae versus Microhylidae because we're not comparing things of, of similar age ranges. And, and that's where it can help to divide things more. So treating these subfamilies, if we were to treat them as families instead, we would say, okay, well, the microhylinae, the subfamily, if we recognize that as a family instead, then we're talking about only 150 species rather than talking about this enormous diversity of the 800 or, or, or so that are, or over 700 that are now recognized within the microhylidae. Um, the other, you know, the other major component of this of this piece of work was that we really looked at the evolution of body size within this group, and and that was my major contribution because it's something that I've gotten more familiar with over, you know, working with these mini frogs and stumpia frogs in Madagascar, and what we were able to show is basically that these frogs have repeatedly evolved miniaturization. So there are four or five different species here that have um, adult body sizes under 16 millimeters. Tiny, tiny, tiny frogs. Yeah, so that's also, what, a, a third of an inch, a quarter of an inch? Yeah, know. somewhere in that range, yeah, very, very small. Very small frogs, and they've all done it independently. And the cool thing is that you can also look and, and, and see that they have different um, uh, developmental mechanisms, they breed in different ways. And now we can start to understand a lot more about you know, what happens when you get small. That's one of the big things that I'm really interested in is what happens to vertebrates when they get tiny? How do they deal with that? How do they deal with their eyes changing to that ridiculously tiny size? How do chameleons that are less than an inch long, two, three centimeters long, hit every fly and springtail that they shoot their tongue at? Sure. Incredible accuracy in an animal that could sit very happily on the tip of your thumb. That, I think, is amazing, and um, understanding the sort of macroevolutionary patterns in these phylogenies is a step towards understanding, like, the biological implications of tiny body size, which I hope also has implications for people who are developing, you know, nanorobots and, you know, biological uh, or, or, you know, biomedical solutions to things. If we're talking about, you know, how does an eye work with incredible resolution at that tiny size super relevant for developments that are happening now in, in you know, nanotechnological um, directions. Mark, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you and getting to, to listen to uh, your passion for these rather tiny little frogs by frog comparison and uh, learning a little bit more about uh, how 
species get their names, and in, and more importantly, in this case, how a genus could come about to get a to be yeah. created. It was it was my pleasure. Uh, this is something you know. In, I recently looked through all the publications that I've uh, that I've put out, and I was like, oh, actually, ninety percent of these are taxonomic. I, I do a lot of this stuff, and it's really fun to talk about it in an engaging way. I think it's a, a great idea to make an entire podcast about this and. Uh, especially good on you for reaching out to people who are beyond your own taxonomic scope. That's something that would be very intimidating for me. So I, I think this will be really cool. I'm super looking forward to listening to your podcast. <laughs> well, I think the next two are related to my to my particular field. But after that, I'm hoping to get some people who are also in plants and some fungi and then also get some other people and other... I think it's it's important that we see that these... That, that the biological diversity of life is not limited to little tiny things that nobody cares about, right? That, that there's a lot happening across the world by a lot of different scientists and that we don't know everything in science and that there's still a lot to discover. We always hear that we've only found like 10% of all of the species. And most people, those are words that hit them in the head and fall into a little pile on the ground. Also I'm hoping that this pie, yeah, I'm hoping <laughs> that this podcast can actually help bring that home to people a little bit more so that they have a better understanding of why we need to care about biological diversity and that it is not limited to things that are, are very small or or very charismatic, like a new species of whale that was recently described, right? Everybody makes a big deal about that because that is a big deal. But that one's getting lots of press. Let's find some other things that people haven't heard a whole lot about and understand why those are important as well. So, Mark, yeah. thank you so much for joining me here on my podcast today. I appreciate my it. Pleasure. and. Uh, I wish you the best of luck, and we'll keep following you, and maybe we'll have you on again sometime if the next time you are out uh, frog hunting and find some interesting things that you would like to share with the world. There are some great things coming this year, so stay tuned. Excellent. Thanks for your time. If you would like to know about our guest, Dr. Mark Schertz, you can follow him on Twitter at M-A-R-K-S-C-H-E-R-Z. Follow his Twitter for his podcast at SquamatesPod. Or find them at his website, squamatespod.com, both of which are referenced in our episode notes. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash New Species Podcast.